Coming up on Venture Voice. Very often, leaders will have a fully formed idea in their head, and they will either call a meeting or give some quick memo to the company saying, attention company, from now on, we are going to do X, Y, Z. So please make it happen. Go. Goodbye. People aren't mind readers. You can't just say something once and expect it to happen. You need to follow through. You need to be specific. You need to really be diligent to make sure that if this is something that's important to you, that you follow through to make sure it's happening. It's all in the details. You can't just stay top level and bark out something once and expect it to happen. Yeah, real kind of forehead slapping moment there where you look back and go, ooh, yeah, I did a lot of that. (laughs) This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm excited to bring you this interview with Derek Sivers from 2008. It's one of my favorite interviews. I interviewed Derek originally in 2005 about his company, CD Baby, one of the first places you could buy independent music on the web back when you had to get a CD shipped to you. And this follow-up interview with him from 2008 was right after he sold his company. He hadn't disclosed the amount that he'd sold his company for. As you'll hear, I asked him straight out, and he told me right on the podcast. I was so excited to break that news on this podcast. And back then, it was before anyone broke any news on podcasts. Even more than that, it was just fascinating because I asked him why he sold his company And as you'll hear, it's a fascinating reason, a story unlike I'd heard from any entrepreneur before, and a very raw reason. He really tells what went wrong, what went right, in a way that entrepreneurs are very infrequently honest about, especially back in 2008, before every entrepreneur had a blog and had a confessional. So this is really raw. I think about it a lot. I've had my business muckrack and also the Shorty Awards for over a decade. I've never sold them, no plans to sell them. But I always think about this interview for how you have to stay engaged with the company and kind of a cautionary tale for what can go wrong, the right amount to delegate, but making sure that you don't lose that kind of visceral connection to your business. So really hope you listen and enjoy it as much as I did. Derek, welcome back to Venture Voice. Thanks. It's good to have you back on. Last time we had you on the show, and this is the first for us, by the way, and having a a guest back on after a period of time. (laughs) So last time you were on, it was November 2005, just about almost three years ago on the mark. And at the time, you were happy as a clam running running your business, CD Baby. You told me you had $25 in revenue and about 50 employees. And no plans to ever sell it. <laughs> and no, and you were going to hold on to it till the day you died. And I really meant that. That wasn't just posturing. P- even close friends would ask, and I'd say, no way, man, this is what I love doing. I'm going to do this till the day I die. So I guess now you're, you know, you're begging the question why. But before we get into that, why don't you just tell, first, just give me the quick pitch for what CD Baby was for anyone who doesn't know, and tell me up until the time you decided to sell, kind of what happened to the business over those three years? Sure. In 1997, I was a musician selling my own CD. At the time, there were absolutely no stores anywhere online that would sell it for you. Amazon only sold books. CD Now only sold major label artists. And there were a handful of other businesses, but they were only like a front end to the major label distribution system. If you were just a guy with a CD that wanted to sell it yourself, 
There was absolutely nothing. So I didn't even mean to start a business. All I did is I went through all of the boring monotony to get my own credit card merchant account and build my own shopping cart. And, and by the way, this is before PayPal too. So, you know, if you wanted to accept money from anybody, you had to go through like a three month long thousand dollar setup process, mountains of red tape, separate bank account kind of stuff just to be able to accept credit card payments online. You know, those were the days. And uh, so I really just built this infrastructure to sell my own CD. But then some of my friends said, hey, man, could you sell my CD? And I said, yeah, sure. OK. And that was CD Baby. It really just grew out of this need to uh, or this kind of desire to help my friends. It was this co-op kind of feeling like, OK, I've built this whole thing just for me. But, hey, as long as it's here, I'll let you use it. And it's funny because that became the spirit of everything else I did. So I went and paid the huge setup fee to get my own UPC barcode account so I could generate UPC barcodes. Then some of my friends needed a barcode. And I said, yeah, OK, I'll make you one. And then I learned how to set up a nice, strong Unix web server that could handle a lot of load. And some of my friends were complaining about their web hosting company. So I said, I'll host your website, you know, doing it for me. So then I made Host Baby. For over the next 10 years, it just the company kept that same kind of spirit. And CD Baby grew into one of the largest sellers and distributors of independent music online. Great. And so since 2005, what changed, let's say, between 2005 and the beginning of this year? Had the business changed a lot? Had it grown? Had it kind of flatlined? Where was it at? It was somewhat of a plateau, a more just from a personal point of view. From a business point of view, you could just see that the line just kept going up. It was doing better than ever. Sales kept growing. The number of signups kept growing. Everything was cool, except that it just kind of hit this point where I just personally felt like, man, I'm kind of doing the exact same thing I've been doing for years. Like, I haven't figured out a proper metaphor for this yet, but it's this feeling that, you know, it takes a, a certain amount of energy to go from zero to 60. And then it's almost like it takes that same amount of energy just to go from 60 to 70. You know what I mean? Where it's like, when I looked at my projects, I'm, I'm quite organized. So I had all my projects laid out in front of me, like, okay, here's some of the things I want to change. So in fact, I'll just give you a specific. So cdbaby.com, the website, only sold complete albums. You couldn't just go buy a song, like track seven off an album. It was only a complete album. So some of our users said that they wanted a, to be able to buy one song. But the technical work in order to make that happen would have required almost a complete overhaul of every last little bit of code in the base because everything since day one was designed programming-wise around the album as the Atom, you know, that was like the unit <laughs> was the album. So to break it into a song would have required just a massive complete overhaul. And I found myself like at the end of 2007 looking at projects like that and imagine about 40 other projects like that, you know, a complete overhaul in order to accept multiple currencies, a complete overhaul in order to have multiple warehouses in other countries. And I just kind of looked at all these projects. And I was like, man, you know what? That's going to take nine months of hard work, and when done, it'll be a tiny incremental improvement. I thought, I think I'd like to go do something else now. <laughs> and that's really all there was to it. I just hit that point where I just wanted to do something else. And it's kind of cool when you're the owner of the company that you can, well, hell, you know, actually, wait, even if you work anywhere, if you work at a company or you own the company, you can make that decision that you're just ready to do something else, even if what you're doing is going really well. It's just this decision that, you know, the personal challenge lies elsewhere and it's time to get out of your rut and 
take the uh, do the scary challenge of doing something new. And so when did you make this decision in your mind that it's time to sell? It was I actually haven't ever told this publicly, so here you go. It was January 18th, my sister's birthday, just by coincidence. It was just this day where honestly three companies in one week had called me asking if I wanted to sell CD Baby. And I told them all no, as I've told every company for years. I was like, no, I'm not selling. Come on, let it go. <laughs> so I told them all no. But I mean, a couple days later, and I just remember it was January 18th, 2008. I thought, well, what if? Okay, I've got an imagination. Let me pull up a blank text document and start typing. What if I did sell it? Then what? And for the first time ever, it was an inspiring idea. I think before I had done that kind of what if scenario in years past, but every time I wrote it, it would be like, no, that would be terrible. This is my baby. This is what I do. This is what I love. No, there's no way you can make me sell it. No amount of money. Forget it. And then when I looked at it again, January 2008, I was like, yeah, you know what? That would be kind of cool because what it really came down to was there were so many other things I had been kind of aching to do for musicians. Things like this idea I was calling muckwork. And this idea of doing a, a documentary, interviewing the grassroots music biz people that are on the receiving end of your music, or telling success stories of artists who are doing really well, things like that. There were all these projects I had been wanting to do and didn't have time to do them because I still kind of was responsible for CD Baby, even though I had been kind of absent. But yeah, just hit that point where I was like, yeah, I think I'd like to. I think just a couple of days later, I sat on my decision for a couple of days, and then I called back disc makers, who were my uh, first choice. They were not offering the most money, but I knew that they would do the best job of running the company. We'd already been working side by side for seven years. I'd seen their operations. I'd been really impressed. They were always kind of my first choice for who I thought would do a great job at running CD Baby. So I gave them first dibs and they took it. So give me a snapshot of the company then on, on your sister's birthday. What was it like at that point in terms of how many employees you had, how much revenue you had, and how many CDs you were processing? Off the top of my head, I think it was like 85 employees. Sorry, I forget the amount of revenue. I know we had paid out about 80 million, so let's say amount of revenue, 90 or 100 million or something like that. Number of CDs, also about 200,000 albums from about 150,000 clients. Yeah, I think that's about it. But more interesting for your story was that I hadn't actually been to the office in almost a year. In spring of 2007, I uh, sold my car and up and left and moved to London for six months. If any of your listeners have read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, <laughs> I read that book while sitting in London. It was kind of preaching to the converted. It talks about you know how to be just the business owner so that you're not required for the day-to-day -day operations of your business. So I was kicking it in London, hardly uh, ever t even talking to my company, just kind of working on some programming and stuff like that. I lived there for seven or eight months last year, and four-hour work week was definitely a good inspiration, kind of uh, giving further ideas on that path. But then even when I came back to the States at the end of the year, didn't even go into the office, just didn't want to see anybody there. <laughs> and um, by the time I sold the company in August 2008, I hadn't been to the office in a year and a half. So I'd already kind of had one foot out the door, you could say. So why didn't you want to see these people? Like, you know, you hired them. I'd imagine, you know, they were your buddies. 
Uh, you, you got both of those wrong so far. <laughs> wow. So who hired them? You know what? Uh... <laughs> we shouldn't go into the ugly details, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, et cetera. But no, I hired the the early gang of CD Baby, you know, from say when it started it in 1998 through about 2001, 2002. I was really involved and the, the original gang that was there in the first few years was just awesome and I was very close with them. After that, I kind of, I really started letting go in like 2002. There's this moment that any small business owner has to get to where you realize that if you don't learn to delegate, that you are trapped. I meet so many people with businesses that just felt like, you know, starting their own company was going to be liberating, but all of a sudden you find out now that owning your own company can be this trap where you get no peace. And I meet these people that, you know, haven't had a day off in five years or whatever. And uh, so it was really around the end of 2002 where I stepped back. I started not going into the office and just teaching everybody else there how to do everything I was doing and making myself unnecessary to the operations of the company. I hadn't really been there since 2002. And we just kind of set up a system where they did their own hiring. And the side effect of that was that I didn't even know the people that worked there anymore. It's like I had this company with 85 employees, and I think I knew maybe 20 of them. And I think I was friends with maybe 10 of them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was already pretty alienated from my own company at the time. So, Do you have regrets about that, or do you feel like you did the right thing and you know, you're having a blast at home all day? Yeah, I think it was no regrets. You know, Looking back, there were some cultural things. I take full responsibility for everything that happened, you know, because so really messed up things happened culturally inside the company near the end. And it was this weird imbalance where they kind of created their own culture that wanted to do things a certain way, which is the opposite way from how I wanted to do things. And I learned that there is such a thing as over-delegating, <laughs> that you can over-delegate to the point where I wasn't even checking in and uh, the company had kind of gone off in this direction. I didn't even realize it because I was trying uh, so hard to be good at delegating that I kind of, uh, yeah, I over-delegated and the culture took twists internally that I never would have expected and it wasn't the one I wanted. And instead of changing it, I just let them have it the way they wanted it and I decided to walk instead of them. Wow, that's interesting. Actually, the only other time I've heard that we had Jay Adelson on the show of Dig in his previous company, Equinix, he'd actually said he overdelegated and kind of same thing, made him too good a job at that and made himself kind of irrelevant to the business. Well, now, being irrelevant to the business can be a great thing. Being unneeded for the operations is a crucial thing. But I think there is a thing culturally where, I mean, I've learned a lot of lessons since then, you know, I mean, it, it hasn't even been that long, but I've been fascinated with what I did wrong. <laughs> so I've been studying a lot about that. So, you know, there's such a thing as when you delegate something. Actually, there's this beautiful book that it wasn't a top seller. So if anybody's interested in this subject that we're talking about right now, check out this book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's all about communication skills in a business. And man, just reading this book, it sounds like the guy had been living inside CD Baby and studying me and then wrote a whole book about like what not to do, you know, because it is just everything I did wrong from the idea of, he said, now very often leaders will have a fully formed idea in their head and they will either call a meeting or give some quick memo to the company saying, attention company, from now on, we are going to do X, Y, Z. So please make it happen. Go. Goodbye. <laughs> and he said, then three months later, the leader checks back and says, what's going on? Why isn't this happening? I told you three months ago. And he said, but you have to remember, people aren't mind readers. 
you can't just say something once and expect it to happen. You need to follow through. You need to be specific. You need to really be diligent to make sure that if this is something that's important to you, that you follow through to make sure it's happening. It's all in the details. You can't just stay top level and bark out something once and expect it to happen. Yeah, real kind of forehead slapping moment there where you look back and go, ooh, yeah, I did a lot of that. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm sorry. I, don't, I wasn't sure if this is the tangent you wanted to take with this phone call, but that's kind of the summary of what went on. No, I mean, I think this is great stuff. I guess, you know, what most people don't delegate enough, it keeps them from growing and having a good time. And then I guess the flip side is, can you have it both ways? Can you delegate and also keep things going in the right direction? So I think it's a great lesson. Yeah, you're right. It is. Uh, there is a good balance. And luckily, I mean, I do think there are some great books that talk about it. Another great one besides what got you here won't get you there is a book called Execution by, I think it's pronounced Ram Charan, C-H-A-R-A-N. Execution is a brilliant book about exactly this, how to take things that are goals or things that you want to make happen and how to follow through to make sure they happen. In that case, though, it says that the leader must be the one who's really there on a day-to-day level, really getting to know people, really involved in everything every day. So I think the other difference that I learned from all this is that I don't want to be that guy again. So for anything new I start up, I'm not going to be president. I may be founder or owner, or in corporate terms, it would be the chairman or something. But I don't want to be president again, because I think that was the other trouble is that I was still president, which is a role that kind of requires you to be there and be involved, but I wasn't. So I really should have kind of put another president in place that really shared my same vision through and through that I would just trust to just do it. But instead, there were kind of lots of managers, but nobody that I felt like really shared my vision for the company. So in fact, I'm sorry, this must, it might be old hat for your users, but it's worth repeating every now and then. One of the hardest lessons learned is the difference between being self-employed and being a business owner. And Robert Kiyosaki has this beautiful phrase that said, uh, you know, you're a true business owner when you can leave your company for a year and come back and it's doing better than when you left. I remember reading that in 2002 going, hell yeah, that's what I need. But in order to be a true business owner, you do need to delegate the role of leadership. At that point, you really are just the owner, meaning like you're, it's almost like just being the investor. You're just the one that owns the shares of the company. And because you're the owner, you can perhaps occasionally give a little guidance and say, I think we should be doing this or I want to fund this new development. But if you're not going to be there, the company really needs a leader. That's yeah, a great distinction. So. I want to get into that more on how you're going to kind of take it to the next level with your next venture. But first, just jumping back to January 18th, did you own the whole company or was there, had there been any shares given away where you had to bring other people on board for the sale? <laughs> uh, no, it was always, yeah, it was 100% me. Yeah. There was a situation where years earlier, my dad had let me some money into return for some shares, but I bought him out. So yeah, I was the 100% owner. Another fascinating bit of advice I read from a guy named Felix Dennis. He's a British publisher. He owns a bunch of those like Computer World magazines and Mac World and PC World or whatever magazines in the UK. One of the most successful magazine publishers in the UK wrote a book where I think the guy's in his 60s now and he has that wonderful cocky tone of nothing to lose. Like, fuck it, I'm just going to tell you the truth because I don't care what you think of me and I don't need you anyway. And he just wrote this book, I guess, just sharing his 
philosophies on business, which I guess he wants to do before he dies. And by the way, the guy parties, apparently he doesn't have long left. But anyway, one of the things he said is never, 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 never give anybody a piece of your business. Yes, you can give big bonuses, you can give big rewards, but never, and I mean never, give anybody even a single percentage of equity. And he just talked about how countless times he, he's he been so glad he made that decision, and it's almost like the single biggest lesson he had to share in his whole book. He kept coming back to it. Well, actually, one was to do the things that you're scared to do, but two was never give anybody a piece of your company. And his insistence on that I thought was just fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah, I had a chance to see him speak in person once, real character. Oh, you did? Actually, he was reading poetry. He has a, uh, <laughs> yep. that's his like, second passion, apparently. Exactly, yeah. Where did you see him talk? Down in Atlanta about three years ago, he had this event. And I think to get people there, since he was less proven as a poet, he you know, had all this free wine and stuff, and it was just kind of open to anybody. <laughs> so I came down and uh, <laughs> shook his hand, and he signed his poetry book for me. Real character. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'd love to uh, hear him talk. I loved his book. I mean, it's really, if you liked his talk, look up his book. It's fascinating. Well, do. So tell me, like, let's jump back. So into the sale now. So you had, you know, you're saying 80 to 100 million in revenue, the whole company, people wanting to buy it. So you decide, okay, I'm going to sell this thing. What number did you come up with to sell it at? 22 million. And where, how do you arrive at that? What kind of math went on? I had looked into selling it earlier and decided I didn't want to. But I decided after actually already going through the due diligence process, through having a few different companies, you know, through the whole like NDA opening up the books or whatever, a few different companies made their bid. I knew that that was about the right price and in talks with other people. I probably could have got more, but also there's a there's a certain point where it wasn't about the money to me. It was really just that I didn't want to work at CD Baby anymore, and I wanted to make sure the company was in good hands. And so I just said, well, you know, whatever. Fair market price, good enough. We actually didn't kind of bicker or negotiate over the price one bit. I just kind of set a price. They said, okay. And that all happened back in early January. Then there was just seven months of boring due diligence paperwork that the banks and lawyers had to do to make everything official. But yeah, it was as simple as me stating a number and them saying, okay, and that was that. So um Another thing, sorry, I'm quoting a lot of books today, but I've been doing a lot of reading in the last eight months. Beautiful book called Stumbling on Happiness talks about how the idea that people who always try to make the absolute best decision end up torturing themselves. Like if you think, I want to buy a car or a computer or something like that, some people will spend months and months in anguish trying to get the absolute best decision and trying to get the absolute best deal, and they will you know, negotiate for hours or days or weeks, down to every last little dollar. And in the end, they're saying, interestingly enough, psychologically, people who do that end up feeling worse about their decision. And people who just kind of shrug and say good enough, psychologically, are much happier. And in the end, the difference between the people who try to maximize and get the best deal possible, and the people who they say, uh, the word they use is satisfice, uh, who just kind of are satisfied with good enough, the difference between the two Decision-wise, is not very much. It's you know the difference of one percent or something, but the difference in happiness is immense. So I think I, I've learned through trial and error and some good examples to just kind of be a good enough kind of guy. Like, eh, yeah, whatever, cool. You know, I'm happier that way. 
So I think this was the first business you started, but uh, is it correct to say this is the first business you sold? Yeah, both City Baby and Host Baby together, yeah. So when you went into this, like, did you just kind of manage it all on your own, or did you rely heavily on advisors, lawyers, bankers, other entrepreneurs? How do you go about kind of getting your compass on how you should handle the process? Oh, it was all just, it was me calling up the cell phone number of the president of Disc Makers, who I already had known as a friend, naming a price, him basically saying, okay. And we're like, all right, there we go. So we both said, okay. And then, you know, they shot over something the next week, like a fax for me to sign, like a letter of intent kind of thing. And that was that. Then I just called up a, my lawyer who was already working with CD Baby anyway and said, okay, make it happen. <laughs> and again, this was something where I decided was fine for me to stay out of the process. Along the way, they tried to involve me many, 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 many times for the next eight months of paperwork. And I realized, you know, this isn't some specialty knowledge that only I have. You know, there's a lawyer at the law firm that that's what he does is help companies sell. And he's done this a hundred times in the past 10 years. So I just let him do his thing. Many times he'd kind of refer to me and say, what do you think about that? What do you think about this? And after a while, I just ended up telling him, look, here are the four most important things to me. As long as these four things are met, you work out the details. <laughs> I don't really, you know, I don't really care about the other points. I just want to make sure that the company's in good hands and that I don't need to do anything after the day of the sale. Like I'm not going to work there anymore, you know. So that was that. So I got them to just take care of it. And yeah, of course, the legal bills are huge, but you know, whatever. How much were the legal bills? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Whatever was my... <laughs> That's my real answer. I, I've erased it from my memory. I don't know. <laughs> That's probably a wise decision. Yeah. So I imagine what would jump out at people is you said it took seven months to sell. I mean, we all just read about J.P. Morgan Chase buying Bear Stearns and, you know, they hammered that deal out in a weekend and it was a multi-billion dollar company. So, you know, why does it take seven months to sell a business? I don't know. I was really surprised at that, too. I think the deal was that the buyer was borrowing money from an investment bank in order to do the purchase. And so they had to kind of present the case to somebody else. So even though I think Disc Makers, the company that bought CD Baby, they believed in it. And like I said, we had a willing buyer and a willing seller with an agreed upon price way back in January. And then it was really just like seven months of details just to get back to the same point. So it's like seven months later, they had everything proven to make their case for the bank so they could get the money so they could buy the company. Yeah, a lot of it was hell. It was kind of like they'd kind of say, okay, now, please prepare for us a list of your top 100 customers in descending order with list grouped by country, grouped by month of invoice with a summary of the monthly invoices with something, something sorted in descending order, but grouped, but excluding those who have been there for longer than six years and such and such and such. And I ended up taking this as kind of like a database challenge. You know, I'm a programming geek, so I'd say, all right, you know, I'd squint and I'd say, I could do that. And I'd, <laughs> and I'd spend like a few hours with the database and give them their damn summary, all the while knowing that I could have just been a cocky bastard and just, you know, said, no, <laughs> here, here's my database. You go figure it out yourself. But I ended up just liking it as a geeky kind of a tech database challenge. But it was lots of that kind of stuff and endless kind of niggling back and forth on a little, you know, the occasional sentence here and there in the contract. But in the end, we just ended up at the same place where we started, which is back in January, I told the guy my price and my four important terms. And he said, OK, and that was that. So we just ended up in the same place seven months later. But now the bankers were happy. <laughs> They'd earned their uh, whatever their chunk of the sale was. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
And then the deal closed just to kind of finish the story here over the summer, right? August 1st, yeah. August 1st. So August 1st, I guess you got the money in the bank. That's enough money that uh, you don't have to work another day in your life. Did that change your lifestyle at all? Not one bit. I wasn't sure if it would, and the answer is it didn't. I thought that was kind of interesting. This sounds weird, and you know, you might think I'm lying, but it was part of the reason I didn't want to sell before is I didn't even want the money. I just I felt icky about having that much money. That's just a stupid amount of money. So in 2007, I was... <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. This is actually story worthy for you here. So in 2007, when I started to feel like I wanted out of CD Baby, I actually reverted back to my original plan. And I should have included this earlier in the story. Back when I started the company, it was 1997, 98. It was a little before the dot-com boom, right? So just a year or two into it, I'm still like a guy in my house with one employee working part-time, and people are already asking me if I'm going to do an IPO, if I'm going to sell it, whatever. And so I always said no, but I said, you know what? If I ever do sell it, here's how I'm going to do it. Or if I ever do want to quit, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it like Willy Wonka. I'm going to put five golden tickets into five CDs, run a massive campaign so that everywhere people are buying millions of CDs just to try to find the five with the golden ticket in it. And then I'll get the people who found the five golden tickets together. But since I don't own a uh, chocolate river to you know push somebody into to knock them off, instead what I'll do is I'll hold a musician's event where all of my clients, all of the musicians can come for free and the five finders of the five golden tickets will be up there on stage like a presidential debate kind of thing, except all of the musicians can then grill them saying, what are you going to do to such and such? And how can you do, uh, you know, What's your philosophy? And each one of the five finders of the golden tickets would have to give their philosophy for if they owned the company, how they would do it. And then the musicians would vote who they wanted to be the new owner of the company. And then I would literally sign the papers over and that person would be the new owner of the company, but on one condition that they also can't sell it. That if at some point they want out, they'll have to do the same process over again. I thought it was a beautiful plan. <laughs> and I actually seriously almost did it in uh, fall of 2007. I got quite serious about it. And I was planning on doing it, and I was going to like move to New York City for a while, get ready to kind of do a whole kind of press barrage. And in the end, I kind of thought, well, I just decided, I, I think a bunch of friends convinced me that it was just kind of stupid. And they're like, a friend of mine said, look, us Jews have a saying, that's like leaving money on the table. <laughs> you don't leave money on the table. What are you talking about? Yeah, I decided not to do that, but it was a beautiful idea. So that was kind of plan A, and then actually selling it was plan B. So, I'm sorry, how do we get onto this tangent? Oh, you talked about, I'm sorry, the money uh, the day before and after the sale. So yeah, part of the reason I wanted to do that is that I didn't even want the money. It wasn't about that. So when I did decide to sell, what I did is I created what's called a, a charitable trust, and I transferred the ownership of the company as much as I could into the trust before selling it. So that when disc makers bought CD Baby, they actually purchased it from the charitable trust. So that all the money went into the trust, and the name of the trust is the Independent Musicians Charitable Trust. And all of that money is going to go to music education when I die. So it's not even mine. It's sitting in a trust fund that will never go to me, never go to my kids or grandkids or whatever. It's all just going back to musicians. In the meantime, while I'm alive, I get to uh, live off the interest from it so that I don't have to, you know, go get a real job. But when I die, 
it all goes back to the musicians anyway. So that's how I kind of justified it, saying, okay, that's better than just a little golden ticket PR thing. So I guess the obvious question is, you know, there are some people out there who would say, well, why not just take the capital, buy a yacht, a helicopter, whatever, whatever you do with it, change the lifestyle. You couldn't pay me to do that stuff. I sure as hell don't want a fucking helicopter. And I don't want a big house with 10 rooms because it's a pain in the ass to clean. You know, I'd already made those lifestyle choices. You know, I don't want that stuff. I Everything I own fits into two suitcases. For a lot of the last year and a half, I've lived out of a backpack, and I like it that way. I got my laptop, and I've got a few books, and that's about it. That's about all I own, and I like it that way. So I'd already made that lifestyle choice, so I didn't want all that other stuff. It's, I guess, part of continuing the lifestyle for you was launching another venture. So you'd kind of alluded to it before uh, with Muckwork and some of your other projects, but kind of fell into pieces now. How'd those come about while you were selling CD Baby? It was actually in the years leading up to it, I just had this idea that, you know, the reason I started CD Baby wasn't to stick CDs into envelopes. That wasn't my mission in life. <laughs> and it wasn't to upload files to Apple. That wasn't a big passion of mine. It was all just about helping my musician friends with whatever I could help them with. And I found that that was still my passion. And again, this is kind of why I said I was never going to sell CD Baby. It's like, it never really felt like work. This is just what I do anyway, even if it pays nothing. So the wonderful idea of selling CD Baby was just like, oh, wow. Now, if I were to do this, then I can continue to do things that help musicians forever. And I don't need to worry about whether it's going to make a good return on investment or anything like that. So, for example, let's talk about the more obvious ones. For years, I've wanted to do a documentary interviewing the people that are on the receiving end of your music. So I think a lot of musicians, we kind of send our music out into the world. And we don't really understand or even think about what it's like to be on the receiving end. You know, you send out your album to a bunch of people to review it, and you just get kind of really self-involved saying, you know, what the hell, fucking jerk didn't review it, or this guy gave it a bad review, what an ass. And you never really think about, like, this guy named Jeff, who's living in some apartment in Cleveland reviewing albums. Why? You know, <laughs> it pays 10 bucks. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress, whatever. And when I was out promoting my own record in the, like, 97, 96, I just found it really enlightening to meet these people, you know, people that work at radio stations and the people that are writers for magazines and the people that are that do the bookings at clubs and realize, like, I'm sorry, you know, it sounds simple, but they've got their own set of worries and concerns that have nothing to do with what the musicians want. And all of a sudden, it made my job a lot easier as a musician being more understanding, understanding what it's like to try to run a profitable venue. Most people that own venues aren't rich they're like you know always on the verge of going out of business and people that review music for magazines are always on the verge of broke but they just do it because they love it so much and so i've always wanted to do a documentary profiling these people but i doubted it was the kind of thing i could really sell and i didn't kind of just wanted to do it for education purpose i didn't care about selling a dvd for 40 bucks and making some money off of doing it it was just something that i felt needed to be done so what i love now is that i can do projects like that infinitely without needing to worry about them having any kind of return. Just if it's something that I think musicians could use or something that would help them, I can just do it. And I love that. So that was the big inspiration And with all these new projects I'm starting. So when you go into these, you don't... Some people think before launching into a venture, well, you know, the criteria, how big can it get? How profitable can it be? 
how scalable is it? What are your criteria then? <laughs> it's more just like, is this useful to musicians? Would it be fun? Is it interesting to me? And that's it. There's some things that, you know, just naturally passionately attract you. And that's what you should be doing. It's funny. I actually kind of feel a little bit like those kind of Silicon Valley jerks that start something with like no plan of ever earning any money, except the difference is they go ask people to give them, you know, millions of dollars to fund this thing that's never going to make any money. And said, I'm just saying, okay, well, how do I just keep my costs low and just do this thing and not worry about what it earns or what it costs? Just do it because it needs to be done. So if you look at my personal site now, sivers.org, it's just my last name, S-I-V-E-R-S dot org, is just a collection of all these projects that I feel like doing. The only one that's going to actually have any chance of profit or being a real company is Muckwork, which I felt was just needed for years. It's the idea of a company that says, we'll do it for you to the musicians, meaning everybody else out there is giving musicians a bunch of tools and widgets and stuff like that and directories full of information and all of it's like part of this do-it-yourself movement. Like, hey, musicians, you can be your own record label and your own graphic designer and your own producer and your own booking agent and your own this and this and that. And, you know, it's kind of funny that in the early 90s, or, sorry, in the late 90s, that was empowering. And now 10 years later into the DIY movement, it's it's a little overwhelming. It's like every musician I know knows all the things that they should be doing, but nobody has enough time to do them all. So it's like, oh, great. I am oh so empowered. <laughs> I can do it all now. You know, that's good in some ways, but in other ways, it's just like, oh, hell, now everything's on my shoulders. So I just wanted to make a company full of assistants, like a kind of army of assistants that can help musicians do all of the uncreative, boring, dirty work that needs to be done so that they can finally free up their time a little more to get back to actually making some music instead of spending their life with a mouse in their hand clicking to add MySpace friends or upload their music to yet another social network and all that kind of crap that musicians are kind of filling their day doing, really, I think, is not a good use of their time. Somebody has to do it, but it doesn't have to be them. So if there's a good, cheap way to take care of it for them, that's what Muckwork is committed to doing. So for musicians out there listening who are pretty excited about this, where is it at now? Muckwork.com is there, though there's nothing there yet. But who knows, by the time you hear this, there may be. <laughs> I think the other... Mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. So M-U-C-K-W-O-R-K.com. But the other interesting thing is, I think, the change, you know, you wanted to keep a theme about what's different now than three years ago. A couple months ago, I was talking with a manager of an artist, and I said, hey, you know, that your artist has a fascinating story. I'd really like to do a success story interview on them. And she said, yeah, sure, we'd be glad to. So that was about two months ago. And just yesterday, she emailed me to say, um, hey, you know, just checking in on that, wondering if we can make that interview happen sometime close to January, because that's when their new album is coming out. And I would really love to time it with this. And, you know, I always try to be as honest as I can. And I was about to write something more polite, like, oh, okay, sure, I'll see if I can, you know, make that happen. I thought, well, you know what? No, you know what my real answer is? It's just, I don't know. I'm just doing this stuff when I feel like it. And I don't really feel like adding some imaginary pressure that's not needed. Like, I imagine when we're 70 or 80 years old and sitting in a rocking chair and looking back at our life, we'll realize that a lot of the pressure that we create for ourselves is, is pretty imagined. 
once I was thinking of letting go of CD Baby, I kind of felt like, oh, but I, I have to do this and I have to reply to emails and I have to manage my team and I have to check in on the health of the company. I'm talking all before I sold it. And I remember feeling like I don't want to have to do all that stuff anymore. And a very wise friend of mine said, well, you never had to. <laughs> you just told yourself you had to and you felt like you had to. But at any point, you could have just walked away. Like, oh, yeah, it's a really good point. You don't have to do anything because you have to, you know, maybe pay your rent or buy food. You have to eat and breathe and <laughs> stuff like that. But all that other stuff that you tell yourself you have to do. No, you don't really. You actually do have a choice that you don't have to do any of it. So I'm trying to be more conscious of that choice now and not create this artificial pressure to, you know, okay, I have to do this success story interview in January with this artist. So I try to schedule that now. It's like, well, wait, I'm just doing it for fun anyway. So why create that pressure? Fair enough. Uh, I'm glad, given that you said that, you felt like you wanted to come on Venture Voice and you didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, the Venture Voice rules, man, that our interview three years ago really surprised me. You asked me some really insightful questions and drew some stuff out of me that I'd never talked about before. And you did it again today. I think we've been on the phone for uh, 45 minutes or so. And I have just told you a bunch of stuff that I have never told anybody except a few close friends. I really like your your interviews. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Derek. And we'll be all of our listeners are on under NDA, so it'll, uh, it'll be our little secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if I wasn't allowed to tell you some of that stuff I just told you. I guess we'll find out, huh? Hey, find out the fun way, right? Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. I'll put links on the site so that all of our listeners can check out your new ventures and uh, hope we can reconnect soon and hear about how well they went. Thanks, man. And yeah, feel free to uh, anybody listening. I'm more available than I used to be, so you can drop me an email to Derek at Sivers.org and glad to help anybody with any questions. If Even if anybody's looking for some free advice for their own project, I kind of enjoy offering advice to, and help to other entrepreneurs. So assuming it's mostly entrepreneurs listening to this, seriously, just feel free to ask me for any advice. I'd be glad to help. That's all for my 2008 interview with Derek Sivers. Derek's gone on to do amazing things. He's become, I think, one of the web's favorite public intellectuals, if you will. I really enjoyed staying friends with him and keeping up with his work. Now, please help me spread the word about this podcast. As a reminder, I'm switching off every other week, bringing you these episodes from The Vault, along with great new episodes with amazing entrepreneurs like Mark Cuban and John Oranger, the billionaire founder of Shutterstock. So uh, please spread the word. The best thing you can do is head over to iTunes, leave a review. It doesn't have to be long. 140 characters is fine. But just give us some reviews there, some more people find out about it. Tweet about it. Tell your friends. And feel free to get in touch with me. I'm just at Gregory on Twitter and Instagram. I read every tweet or every Instagram post. So uh, hit me up there. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice. <laughs> <laughs>